Hi, you're tuning in to the Thank You Enjoy podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Ethan. And this is our podcast where we talk about Asian and Asian American culture and media. We will also be sharing our analyses and personal thoughts on Asian American identity and diaspora. Hello and welcome to the new episode of Thank You Enjoy. This episode we will be discussing 88 Rising and racial triangulation. These are pretty heavy topics, but I'm really excited to kind of engage in this. And um, before we get started, how, how are we doing today, Allison? Well, I think we'll tell listeners that this episode was recorded the Monday right after Joji put out his new album, Nectar, which is, I mean, like we had this episode planned way ahead of time, but it just so happened that Joji just released his new album. What a coincidence. So, I've just been listening to that. Yeah, Allison lot. has not um, shut up about the album at all. <laughs> I did not talk about that album at all yesterday. Okay. <laughs> uh, you, you texted us like Thursday night, I want to say. Right when it because it was it was Friday it was Friday midnight, midnight. Yeah. New so, York which is yeah. when it was dropped so You're dedicated. like that's I was listening <laughs> well and then like I think before the album came out I was like very skeptical slash like on the fence if the album was gonna be good because I think we we're talking about this us two because we were like does anyone actually like every single one of Joji's songs like it seems like there's just songs that some people like really like and some people don't like and it just like is that for like every song so when he put out like his singles throughout this year I liked two of them and the other two I was like I don't know about this so I was like yeah "Eh, yeah yeah I was like is this album gonna be good or is it gonna be like half good half bad but I think in general I like it yeah same here I kind of share that sentiment about Joji in general too because okay so Ballads One when that came out in 2018 like I, I remember listening to it because I was like, oh, I love in tongues, I can't wait. And then I just immediately like lost interest after the first four songs. So hearing this new album, Nectar by Joji, was a very welcome surprise because it was more consistently good, like more consistently interesting in terms of production. So yeah, no, I, I'm glad. I'm glad that both of us like it. And we were both kind of going in with that hesitation yes the hesitation perfect word and it's funny i just looked up joji's first album on google it gave me pink season which is technically by pink guy which is the alter ego of filthy frank who's the alter ego of joji which is also the arts alter ego of george miller (laughs) oh my goodness this guy is such a character (laughs) yeah Uh, if if you guys haven't watched filthy frank it's not for the faint of heart but among my favorites are his videos covering weeaboos that and one's really good. That people, one's actually funny. Yeah, that one's hilarious. And also people on the internet and internet rappers. Because the internet rappers yeah, one is one. so ironic because he was basically making fun of SoundCloud rappers who always did nothing but revolve their entire personality around their mixtape. And he ended up becoming like an artist in his own right. And like if you look at the top comments of that internet rappers video in particular, the Filthy Frank fans are always like, Oh, he ended up becoming the villain. <laughs> yeah. He, he became the very thing he sought to destroy, you know. That's a joke. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's it's kind of interesting how that kind of turned around. And unfortunately, because Joji decided to pursue his music career, he's no longer, he's actually discontinued Filthy Frank. So there's no more new videos from Filthy Frank. He's fo- focusing 100% on his music career, which honestly, I think that's good for him. Like, honestly. I thought he stopped Filthy Frank too because it was like really bad for his mental health. I can see why though. I mean, when he released Joji Vlogs, 
And Joji Vlogs was very different from Filthy Frank. It was literally just him not playing the Filthy Frank character. It was him just having a camera and just filming his travels around Japan. It was a really cool video series. Like he would go to Universal Studios in Osaka. He would just hang out with friends out in the street and just show what street life was like in Japan. And it was really interesting, but Filthy Frank fans opposed it. And to the point where they actually bullied him to delete those videos. Really? He got yeah. bullied to delete them? That's why when you look at I thought he deleted them on his own volition, but I didn't know he was bullied. Yeah. And like, that's why, that's the sentiment I've heard from fans who really like Joji Vlogs, because every time you look up Joji Vlogs now, you it's not officially posted by Filthy Frank. It's actually like an offshoot, like a third party account who managed to save it and just repost it. And fans usually comment on it saying like, it's such a shame that Filthy Frank's fans bullied him into submission basically to delete these wow. videos. You know, it's really sad, you know? So I can see why he would want to quit Filthy Frank because he kind of like attracted a very annoying fan base, a very yeah. obnoxious fan base, you know? So that's a, quite unfortunate. But um, that's a great way to kind of start off how we're doing because our episode today is about 88 Rising and kind of like this whole oral essay I have about how 88 Rising kind of relates to the racial triangulation of Asian Americans. And this is all kind of like big terminology and we will cover all this. And so let's start off with what 88 Rising is. Allison, to you, what is 88 Rising? To me, it's purely a label that is also kind of, I mean, I feel like label now is so much more like they also do like brand partnerships and right. it's like more like a cultural thing too but I think the first time I heard about 88 Rising was maybe just a couple years ago like I don't remember knowing too much about them when we were in when I was at UCLA yeah um because they just they had their first concert I think my junior to senior year so is that 2018 they had their first like concert in LA at the LA Historic Park, I think. That was the Head in the Clouds Festival, right? Is that yeah, what yeah, yeah. About? That's yeah, what it was yeah. called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Head in the Clouds. And I thought, I, I think like in general, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's like a label that is mostly Asian, if not completely Asian. Right. And like the style is like hip hop, R&B, rap. Right. Like it's not just like pop music. Right, right, me. right. Yeah. Um, so that was like that was my first impression of 88 Rising. And then and then I think I started seeing them doing like collabs. So then I started seeing like YouTube videos. So like the um hot ones, I started seeing them doing like hot ones and they started collaborating munchies. So they were starting to like branch out in that way. Like it wasn't just music, it was like it was almost kind of like Bon Appetit where they're like making each of their chefs like a personality. So then now it's like each of their artists are, are like now more than just like musicians, like they're also on shows now. Right, right, yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know who 88 Rising is, it's like a record label. It's also a production company, and it's also like a collective of primarily Asian and Asian-American artists where there's a lot of interactivity and exchange between the artists. On the surface, they're kind of like a label. So some of the artists that are under 88 Rising include Joji, who's also known as Filthy Frank on YouTube. There's also Rich Brian. And there's also the Higher Brothers, who's a Chinese rap trio. And there's also Nikki, who is an Indonesian singer, primarily in the R&B space. And those are probably the most famous artists out of that label. 
that kind of explains what 88 Rising is. And it's kind of interesting how they operate because like they're sort of like their own brand to the point where they've actually released albums under the 88 Rising artist name. Like it's just an album called Head in the Clouds by 88 Rising. There's no one else under that artist's attribution. And so that album, as you can guess, basically features the entire roster of 88 Rising collabing on songs. It's not like individual songs by each artist. It's actually all of them at once in like several songs. And some songs have just two of them. Some songs have like all five of them. Like Midsummer Madness has Joji, Higher Brothers, and Rich Brian all in one song. So it's really cool what they've been doing. And they kind of pride themselves in having, bringing Asian American artists to the forefront. Now, what's interesting about 88 Rising is that the genres of music that 88 Rising is actually quite exclusive. It's mostly just hip hop, R&B, rap, and not that much pop, actually. That's pretty much it. And I think 88 Rising kind of represents this more recent movement where that we've noticed of a cultural trend where Asians are now occupying basically predominantly Black spaces in music, arts, and culture. And we've been noticing this exchange lately where a lot of Asians have been occupying those spaces now. So 88 Rising is an example of that. And another example of that that I'll probably briefly mention right now is that K-pop, Korean pop, is really inspired by modern hip-hop today. And that's going to be like a whole conversation in itself. And K-pop will actually plan on covering later on in this season. But the point is, there's been a recent trend in Asians occupying predominantly Black spaces in music. And likewise, we also see black and white artists taking on Asian imagery into their aesthetics. And some of the examples that I can name right now for black artists kind of taking on Asian imagery into their aesthetic could include some of the earliest forms of hip hop, which includes Wu-Tang Clan sampling Chinese Kung Fu films and their music, just taking that audio. And more recently, Kendrick Lamar's The Damn Tour. Kendrick Lamar basically took on this new moniker called Kung Fu Kenny. And he had an extensive use of Orientalist and Asian imagery in his tour. So some of the video transitions at the concert, and I actually went to the concert too because that was my first and so far only time I've seen Kendrick Lamar. And his video transitions at the Dam tour actually referenced old 1960s Kung Fu films and featured Mandarin speaking Chinese woman and a black woman speaking Mandarin, which is kind of interesting from what I remember. And there were also live performances of martial arts. So there was like a actual, like he had like a ninja on stage with him when he was performing DNA. And there was an interlude where they were performing feel. And there was like a guy doing Tai Chi in the middle of the audience. So it was kind of interesting that he kind of took on that imagery. And I know some friends took issue with this because some of my Asian friends who went to the tour took issue with this because it kind of felt like appropriation. And what's also interesting is when this tour was happening, Kendrick Lamar did this really cool, interesting thing where when the tour date happened at, the, at that location, at that respective location, he would open a pop-up shop. And what's so funny is that I went to the San Jose date for the damn tour, and there was a pop-up shop featuring Kendrick Lamar merch that opened up, and it opened up in all places, Chinatown, San Francisco. So I'm not sure if that was like a coincidence, but it kind of felt like he was still kind of going for that Asian imagery in his aesthetic for the damn tour. Most recently, that like even more recent than Kendrick Lamar's damn tour, I would say Nicki Minaj's Chun Li music video and song. It was kind of a Orientalist mess, honestly, where she claimed that the song was a tribute to her Japanese great grandfather. But in the music video itself, it felt like this 
mass of different Asian cultures all jumbled together and just kind of taking on this Asian aesthetic without even paying attention to the history or the cultural details of it. There was like Chinese references mixed with Vietnamese references mixed with Japanese references. So it was all over a mess. This also extends to white artists too, where more recently I've seen some white artists take on Asian aesthetic as well. Early on, we could say Gwen Stefani and the Harajuku girls that she had, where she had these Japanese women that she hired to be featured in her music videos and her performances, who were basically like props. Like there was just these Japanese girls who would dance around and they got paid and Madonna, or not Madonna, Gwen Stefani saw no, saw no issue with this, but other people did. And more recently, Ariana Grande went under fire for her Seven Rings marketing campaign where it used the extensive use of Japanese imagery. And she basically got a lot of shit for it. And Ariana Grande ended up speaking out and saying, that I'm just appreciating Japanese culture. What's wrong with me trying to take on this Japanese aesthetic? But of course this didn't sit well. And so she was accused of cultural appropriation. And even Casey Musgraves wearing a traditional Vietnamese dress, but Miss, she was wore a traditional Vietnamese dress that was a two piece, but she only wore one piece of it. And basically she wasn't wearing pants in the, which was the, supposed to be the second piece. And so she got accused of sexualizing Vietnamese culture and appropriating it. So I want to kind of introduce this question uh, to Allison is that personally for you, where do you draw the line between appre appreciation and appropriation? Wow, what a difficult question. I feel like <laughs> the line shifts, moves around. But I feel like it's sort of like in the end, who's profiting? And that's the line where it crosses to exploitation. Right, right. And like, I think we'll, we'll, pro we'll also discuss this when we talk about food, because that's probably what I'm more familiar with. Right, right, right. Yeah. But yeah, like food or music, it's just, it also has to be done in like a tasteful manner as well. Like things can obviously be done distastefully and it comes out bad and there's also like the line between like execution and intention like right for all we know like their intentions might have been in the right place but the execution might have fell just short of what would have made it okay <laughs> i mean there's a lot i mean like i think with the kendrick lamar thing that's like interesting because there was that era of black black exploitation films where they were all doing like kung fu so mm, yeah if you know it, it also goes back to like if Kendrick Lamar was actually inspired by black exploitation right, right which also took elements from kung fu films like I'm like I don't really know you know like I don't know how to draw that line for yeah for yeah. that so yeah it, it really is I, th I feel like it's complicated and I guess like the only way to really delineate is having Asian creators on board. Right, yeah. The same goes for any other culture that we don't, we aren't a part of, like. Exactly. And so, you know, this conversation can easily turn around to Asians, and we're going to get to this about Asians occupying Black spaces. And yeah. is that considered appropriation? Because, you know, it, it, it does go both ways. It's not that Black people are stealing Asian imagery. Asians are very much stealing from Black culture as well. And we have to acknowledge that as well it's really hard to kind of determine a right answer for mm -hmm. where we draw the line. It's almost personal standard. And I think you give a good standard in terms of who profits, right? 
Um, but sometimes it could be beyond that. It could just be beyond like, where do you feel the representation is going towards? Or how do you think this contributes to representation? So that's why I sometimes don't even take a stance or I do take a stance, but I also am more cautious about it because there's so I, much history and exchange, especially in the yeah. point about black exploitation films. Like Kung Fu films in turn had black actors in them. Like Enter the Dragon had Jim Kelly in it. Uh, because they wanted to capitalize off the black exploitation popularity, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of interesting yeah. how we see this exchange. I think also like going behind like intention and appreciation and execution, you know, all three. I would say probably the most obvious poorly executed would be Ariana Grande's tattoo. Like perhaps right, her yeah. intentions were there, but not knowing what the words mean is a huge problem right so you it's like they have to do their research in like knowing the history appreciating the history and then re-exhibiting the history yeah so it's the same thing whenever i see like non-asian people with asian characters tattooed on them or even wearing an asian dress to the bar which i've seen a couple times too right like it's like kind of stuff like that where i'm just like do you really like know what the words mean and stuff like that and it's right. also like how attached are you to those words that it'll live forever <laughs> on your body you know you know what i mean yeah 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 exactly yeah one thing i wanted to add about the ariana grande thing you mentioned is that it's funny because i feel like she even screenshotted her text messages with her consultant quote unquote and this consultant apparently like spoke japanese and was basically her cultural consultant about japanese culture so it was like Ariana Grande was trying to prove to her audience and her critics that she was doing her homework. But then, of course, we all know the story is that she got shit for it because the characters for Seven Rings, when she literally translated it, that even though it does directly translate to Seven Rings, that term is used in Japanese culture to refer to a grill, which is really <laughs> funny. <laughs> <laughs> and her consultant didn't like let her know i guess not no and like it's funny because i think she showed her text messages and from what i recall in my memory she had written like okay so seven rings in japanese is this right and then the person said yep that's it that's correct those are the characters you would use for seven rings so it's kind of interesting how she's like well i did my homework and it's kind of lame because i think that's what white people like to do sometimes too is that when they get called out for stealing asian culture or being disrespectful of it they'll just say like well i didn't know any better they kind of delegate the responsibility away from themselves so that they could say well i just looked it up on google and i did all i could right and they don't accept responsibility yeah. ultimately right and that's a huge issue i have like it's okay to like okay it's not okay to like exploit and disrespect asian cultures or cultures that are not your own for that matter but you know if you are going to do it then at least have humility at least apologize for it at least accept that you were wrong and that yeah. actual people in that culture are calling you out for this and you're still not going to listen to them and i don't know if that's a colo colonial mindset or something but it's just kind of it always kind of pisses me off when that happens i wonder if the person who actually tattooed it on her was an asian person that's true too, i think yeah. that's i mean like i i were getting specifics into tattoos but it's also kind of like I mean, like, I have tattoos, so I follow a lot of tattoo artists on Instagram, and it's kind of like, whenever I see a person's portfolio, and it is, like, very heavy in Asian style, 
but then I see it's like the whitest guy ever <laughs> from like Missouri tattooing it on the whitest people ever. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of yeah. weird. Yeah. That to me is like a little weird. Like if I want to get something that is, you know, an Asian style tattoo. Right, right, right. I would prefer if my tattoo artist is Asian. <laughs> yeah, and it has that cultural background, right? Exactly, and like that cultural connection. And like, I've even seen, like I do follow Asian women who tattoo. And like, they even say like in their info and booking, they're like, I'm like a Taiwanese person. And oh, my so they style- specify. Yeah, they specify. Like oh, they say cool. like, I'm Chinese, wow. like I come from this background. And they're like, my art is primarily like East Asian style. Mm, okay. So then they're like, they're like, if you're not Asian and you're going to get this tattoo, um, I saw like, for example, one person, I think they're recreating like a famous Chinese painter's right. tattoo or a painter's painting, like and turn into a into tattoo. Into a tattoo, okay. Yeah, they're like, if you're going to get this, you need to learn how to pronounce the original painter's name. Oh, wow. If you're not, if you're not Asian and you're going to get it. So they use, they use their platform to educate their clients. Exactly. That's so, so it's cool. like stuff like that where I'm like, if you're gonna get like Asian characters, Chinese characters, let's say, the may maybe make sure your tattoo artist <laughs> Chinese and speaks the language. Right. And it goes to your maybe. point about who profits, right? And that's where you draw the line about who gets the money, right? Right. And that's a huge issue in cultural appropriation where it's like it kind of goes back to how Asians used to be scrutinized for expressing their culture, but when white people do it, it's seen as cool, right? Right. And it's it goes to another level where it's like actual profit, where it's like, why are you going to a white artist, a white tattoo artist or a white artist in general, like a music artist and taking in the Asian aesthetics when you could actually be supporting an Asian artist who mm-hmm. embodies and actually has a closer connection to those aesthetics, to that culture. And that it's not it's actually more than just an aesthetic. It's actual full on cultural expression. So it kind of goes into that that conversation as well. And this conversation about cultural appropriation and appreciation and how we keep on seeing this cultural exchange between Asian artists and Black artists and white artists, I think in order to talk about this, we have to talk about racial triangulation. So this is going to be pretty long as I get into this. Allison, feel free to chime in if I say anything of particular interest. I want you to interrupt me because I'm going to, I want to encourage this conversation. Uh, this is going to be a pretty long section where I kind of dive into summarizing the paper because I read the whole paper. And I actually really enjoyed it. It was the first time I actually enjoyed reading a research paper. And so I have a lot to say about it. And I'm going to attempt to summarize the whole paper. So the paper kind of starts off with Claire Kim talking about how she's pretty much dissatisfied with the current two systems that have been in place in academia when it comes to trying to categorize different levels of racialization. Now, racialization is kind of like the way of describing how basically a dominant group, which in this case will be white people, code other races in terms of superiority. The basis of racialization is, be, is coding a race into a certain categories. And so Kim was saying that she was dissatisfied with the current systems in place. And the two systems, if I really want to go into them, is that one system was basically saying that oh, well, there's a linear system. White people are at the top. Black people are pretty much at the bottom. And Latinx people are kind of like above Black people. And then Asian people are above that. And Kim didn't like that system because it kind of assumed that there was some sort of linear kind of hierarchy to racialization. And she felt like that was inaccurate. 
And the other system that was in place was kind of saying that different ethnic groups, different races, basically kind of have their own racialization. So they're independent of each other. And Kim also thought, well, that's not true either, because a lot of racialization of Asian Americans, for example, kind of stems from white people's racialization of black people and basically comparing the two groups. And so they're not independent of each other. These different ethnicities and different cultures and different races are kind of interacting when they get racialized. And so she wanted to propose a new system that could take into account the fact that racialization is a interdependent process and also take into account that it's not simply linear. And so she suggested that, and she proposed that Asian Americans are racially triangulated by white people. Now, what does that mean? So racial triangulation basically says that instead of simply doing a linear model of valorization or racial superiority, where you know this group is better than this group, better than this group, instead of doing that, Kim was saying that Asian Americans are placed on two scales. And also in comparison to white people and black people, they're basically on two different scales. The two different scales are relative valorization, which is basically like white people praising a racial group. That's relative valorization. And the second scale is civic ostracism, or basically white people's perception of how foreign a racial group is. So now I want you to take your visualization skills into play right now. The best way to describe this, and we will include this graphic on Instagram, but I want you to imagine a scatterplot graph with the x-axis being civic ostracism and the y-axis being relative valorization. So on the x-axis, the more left you go, the less ostracized you are or the more domestic you're seen. And then the more right you go on the x-axis, that means you're more ostracized or you're seen as more foreign. And on the y-axis, the lower you go, the less valorized you are, which means you're basically more inferior. But the higher you go on the y-axis, the more valorized you are. And so the more superior you're perceived. So what Kim is saying is that white people and black people will be in the domestic side of the graph, right? So they're on one side of the graph and white people are above black people. So white people will be higher up on the left and black people will be lower on the left. So white people higher left, black people lower left. And the old system would state that Asian Americans are in between them directly. But what Kim is saying is that Asian Americans are not in between them. Asian Americans are on the middle right. So they form a triangle between white people, black people, and Asians on the graph. Asian people would be more right on the x-axis, and so they're seen as more foreign, but they're also seen as slightly more superior to black people by white people. That's how they're racialized. So Kim is saying that Asian Americans' relationship with black people and white people is that they're seen as more ostracized and they are kind of in between being white and being black in terms of racial superiority, because that's how white people kind of have codified and racialized Asian Americans since they first immigrated in the 1850s. All right, so I'll keep going. And we will include this graph to show that Asian Americans are triangulated. And the reason Kim says they're triangulated is that it forms a triangle with white people and black people on the graph of valorization and civic ostracism. So this all kind of sounds like mumbo jumbo in theory, but Kim actually goes on in her paper to basically say history has supported racial triangulation. So Kim kind of goes in 
to two separate eras, the 1850s to the 1950s, and then the year 1965 to present. Those are two distinct eras that she identifies as having indicators that racial triangulation has been supported throughout history. So let's go back to 1850s when the first Chinese Americans first immigrated to the United States. And the reason they immigrated to the United States was they wanted to basically find a better life as most immigrants tend to go for. And during this time, the one thing that Chinese immigrants are known for is for building the railroad. So in post-emancipation United States, white people needed labor, but they still wanted to maintain their white superiority and dominance as Claire Kim says. So Chinese laborers who were immigrating were seen as the solution. They were temporary labor who had no political power because they couldn't gain citizenship at all. They were not eligible to get citizenship, whereas black people were because of emancipation. So in order to maintain this white dominance, they hired Chinese laborers, they were the solution. And this was some of the early beginnings of the model minority myth that kind of arose out of this because Chinese laborers were seen as caring for the law and stayed out of trouble by white people, according to Kim. And therefore they were apolitical and were no longer a threat to white dominance because they were not going to be involved in politics. Now, however, whenever politics did come up, the US government always classified Asians as non-white. So Asians were kind of like in this weird position where they were seen as better than black people, better than black labor, because they didn't have political power. But when politics came into play, Asians were classified as not white and essentially the same status as black people. Even Bhagat Singh Thin, he was an immigrant from India who ethnologists considered Caucasian. And he immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s. And this was covered in the PBS documentary, Asian Americans. He was denied being categorized as white, even though he filled out his form saying he was white. And ethnologists would say he's Caucasian because the United States said he wasn't white, quote unquote, by common parlance. So it's kind of interesting how Asian Americans are kind of seen as this fluid dynamic. And this supports the racial triangulation model that Claire Kim is suggesting, that Asian Americans are seen as foreign. And so they don't have the political power. And so therefore, they're kind of seen as somewhat superior to Blacks by white people. But they're also seen as like not white at the same time, right? It's like this middle ground. And so... Claire Kim kind of goes on to the next era that she wants to go over, which is 1965 to present. And what she likes to cite in this paper is the civil rights movement. The trend that we saw from 1965 to present in the model minority myth is kind of what we know about the model minority myth, is that Asian Americans are successful. Basically, white people attribute Asian American success to their cultural values and distinction, their hard work, and their apolitical positions. So it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because Despite Asian Americans being born in America and America being the only place that they know, they're still seen as being culturally distinct from Americans. They're seen as Asians, but not Americans, even though they've been born in America. And it kind of shows that white people define culture based on race and blood, which allowed them to basically justify rejecting aid for Black people. So now you can kind of see how the model minority myth is actually harmful to both the Asian American community and also the black community because the model minority myth is used by white people to justify disenfranchising and delegitimizing the black community. And one case that Kim brings up from 1965 present is the case of affirmative action. And affirmative action, to kind of sum it up, 
was basically an initiative put forward by colleges to try to allow more minority students or students from minority communities to kind of like basically account for their minority situation so that they could go to college and account for the resources that are available to them. Because as we know, everything's systemic. That's how racism kind of roots from. So what ended up happening during 1965 present, this was actually towards the 80s, I think. Asians, Americans noticed that at Ivy League schools, the student body at Ivy League schools didn't reflect the application pool or the admission rates at these schools. Even though 20% of the applicants at Harvard, for example, were Asian American, there was still like less than 5% Asian Americans in the entire accepted student body at Harvard. And Asian Americans took issue with this. They basically started confronting the universities about their use of racial quotas on Asian Americans. However, conservative politicians ended up seeing this as an opportunity to attack affirmative action and blame it on affirmative action rather than on unjust racial quotas. And so the conservative politicians, and in, in this case, they were mostly white, white people because they were against affirmative action. They saw affirmative action as a threat to white dominance. They turned the issue of white discrimination against Asian Americans into one of black reverse discrimination, quote unquote, attacking Asian Americans due to affirmative, affirmative action. This effectively deflects the attention away from white dominance that these institutions carry and ends up basically pitting two minority groups against each other. So basically racial triangulation and the model minority myth that has arisen from it allows white people to keep black Americans and Asian Americans in respective positions of political power to keep them from threatening white dominance by placing Asian Americans in a superior position to Blacks, but still maintaining their foreign civic ostracism. And throughout history, they've achieved this by using Asian Americans to reject and dismiss Black struggles, and by rewarding Asian Americans so long as they remain apolitical and foreign. So that's kind of like my long-ass summary of Claire Kim 1999, the racial triangulation of Asian Americans. So how does 88 Rising kind of fall into this? And my interpretation is that the reason we keep on seeing Asians entering the hip hop space, and in this case, 88 Rising, is so Asian Americans can be seen as less foreign and can bear the political and social power and capital that hip hop can grant them. And we know that the history of hip hop has always been anti-establishment. It's always been used as a platform to speak out against the government, to speak out against the unjust systems in place, particularly by Black Americans. And so Asian Americans are entering that space because my interpretation is that they want to be seen as less foreign and be able to bear the political power that has been taken away from them by white people. And the song in particular that I want to talk about in this episode to make my case about 88 Rising is none other than the Higher Brothers song, Made in China. Allison, have you heard this song before? Have you listened to the Higher Brothers yeah, at all? Yeah, I actually I heard this song in an Uber Ooh. for the first time with my other Asian friend, Ethan Chong. Uh -huh. And I think the driver was, um, the driver was an Asian. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe like white passing, but like, was ethnically, ethnically ambiguous. Um, but the song was obviously like not on the radio. It, it's like he connected his Spotify to the Bluetooth. 
Yeah. And he played the song. And I think when I first heard it, I literally was just like, whoa, this is like so offensive. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you think it was offensive? I think it's because like I didn't know who was singing it. And it was like the, was it maybe like the refrain? Made in China was, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think yeah. it was like something like that. And it, I think it was like maybe a high pitched or it was like a bunch of like women singing the refrain. Oh, and, I know what you're talking about. I'm going to quote this. This is the intro to the song, I think. It's yeah, it's the yeah. intro. And then I was like, man, this sounds so racist. And yeah, I was yeah. like, it's also called like, and I didn't know who the artist was. So you didn't was know they the were actually thing. Chinese. Yeah, I didn't know they were actually Chinese. And so when I first heard it, I was like, man, this is fucking awkward because it's this like non-Asian guy with two Asian people in the back <laughs> that he's like driving. And I was like, ah. Oh, man. <laughs> So that's that was awkward. my introduction to the song. And then I think I like remembered and I was like, oh, so it was done by Higher Brothers. And then I was also still like, I don't know if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So let's talk about the instrumentals of Made in China. What's very interesting about it is that right off the bat, the first, and this is going to start, start sounding like my old UCLA radio show, Musicology. But what's interesting is that the instrumental for Made in China uses the pentatonic scale, which is the scale often most associated with Chinese music. And the instrumentation uses what sounds like a hammered dulcimer, which is also a traditional Chinese instrument. So right off the bat, the production is already making a statement about how its Asian-ness in the music, right? Like even though it's like a hip hop beat that's like basically taken from black artists, it puts its own spin, its own Asian American spin or Asian spin on it using Chinese, traditional Chinese instrumentation and a traditional Chinese scale to form the melody of the instrumental. Now, Allison talked about a refrain that she thought sounded really racist, and this is actually the intro to the song. The intro to the song ha- features a woman going, rap music, China? What are they even saying? Is this Chinese rap music? Sounds like they're just saying ching chong chong. Oh my God. <laughs> And so this is used as like a satirical mechanism to kind of introduce the song, to kind of like say that I've never heard of Chinese rap before. And like, what is Chinese rap? Like, you know, when you think of rap and hip hop, you don't think of China, you don't think of Chinese people because the higher brothers are all ethnically Chinese. They're trying to make a statement saying that we're in the game now and you may not have heard of us, but we're going to about to prove ourselves to you. And so some of the lyrics that we start seeing right in the first chorus is, my chains, new gold watch made in China. We play ping pong ball made in China. Yeah, higher brothers, black cab made in China. She said she didn't love me. She said she didn't love me. She all made in China. She all made in China. She lied, she lied. And then the rest of the song is actually primarily in Mandarin. And the Chinese translation is saying the alarm clock that wakes you up in China is made in China. (laughs) Or like some of the toothpaste that you have Even the smallest household items that you have are made in China. The whole song constantly pushes this message of made in China, made in China, made in China. And they start talking about all the material objects that have been made in China. And you know how like, you know, you buy anything in America, you look at the bottom of it and there's always a sticker or some sort of mold in it that says made in China. And that's why made in China is such a popular terminology in American culture, at least, because all these products that we get our goods from are made in China. And the higher brothers are basically saying, you know, you may not realize it, but everything that you do, everything that you own is made in China. And so that's why I think Made in China is a perfect example of my interpretation that 
the reason collectives like 88 Rising exist and the reason that we see K-pop entering predominantly black spaces is that they no longer want to be seen as foreign. The song Made in China by the Higher Brothers kind of starts off with a satirical notion that kind of makes fun of people who say that Asians are foreign and tries to basically reverse that stereotype to say that Asian Americans are not foreign. We're actually been domestic this whole time. Chinese people have been domestic this whole time. And so they're using hip hop to kind of bear this political and social capital to express that Chinese Americans are not foreign, if that makes sense. And this all relates back to the racial triangulation where Asian Americans are kind of triangulated to be seen as more foreign and apolitical, right? So that's kind of like the interpretation I have about why we see this trend. I know this is not necessarily a good or a bad thing for Asian Americans because it has its pros and cons, right? Now, we started this conversation about cultural appropriation, and this is the major issue that has kind of arisen out of this cultural exchange where Asian artists are taking over predominantly Black spaces, and likewise, Black artists and white artists are taking Asian aesthetics and culture and being accused of appropriation. So the pros and cons is that, like, for example, K-pop has turned hip-hop into an art form whose history was rooted in struggle, poverty, and disenfranchisement into some high-class commercial export from Korea around the world. And you know, K-pop artists have like blatantly ripped off songs from Black hip-hop artists and have gone into lawsuits because of it. And likewise, I know artists like G-Dragon have actually gone under scrutiny for romanticizing Black struggle because they take their music without acknowledging the painful history of the Black experience that came with that music. And with the case of 88 Rising, Rich Brian actually went by a former moniker that took a lot of shit and it took a lot of controversy. And I can see why. I'm not even going to say his former moniker. All I'm going to say about his former moniker is that it was Rich and he didn't call himself Rich Brian. He called himself Rich and it was basically the N-word with C-H replacing N. And he ended up changing his name himself to Rich Brian because he knew that it was wrong. And so when he first basically got viral on YouTube, he called himself that moniker and it was just very offensive and it was just kind of interesting. Like, I personally wouldn't say it. Like, that's the thing though, is that it kind of starts this conversation where we see this cultural exchange. It starts this conversation about appropriation and whether this is the right thing to do. My closing statement about this conversation from all the episode notes I have for today is that uh, I'm going to link this article that I read about this particular exchange we see in hip hop. And the final statement that the article says is that Black artists will need to treat Asian culture as more than a squint, and Asians will need to dig further into Black culture than simply a strategic means to coolness. And so that's kind of like what I have to say about the exchange between Asian artists and Black artists and all the little controversies and nuances that kind of arise from it. I think also like relating it to our next main episode, Always Be My Maybe. And yes. also fresh off the boat, because I do remember an episode where the main kid, like, starts listening to hip-hop. Maybe in a different generation, like, not now, but, I don't know, back in the 90s or, like, whenever these movies and shows were set. But, like, listening to hip-hop was, like, the cool rebel thing. That was. That was a thing in the 90s. My cousin went to high school in the 90s, and I remember a year ago, I had this conversation with him. And, you know, I was asking him, who, who did you listen to in high school? And then he was saying like, oh yeah, we will listen to Aaliyah, you know, and I'm trying to remember the other artists he named, but he was basically, he actually directly said your sentiment. 
where he said all the Asians at school basically didn't want to be white. They, yeah. He said that <laughs> black was cool and you have to be closer to black culture in order to be seen as cool. And th- that's why he knows all that classic 90s R&B and hip hop. Like yeah. further back in history, it kind of was. And it's kind of interesting because we see it in the generation that was born here. It's like they were yeah. acculturated into American culture. And, you know, everything that we know about American culture is pretty much created by Black people, by Black artists. Mm-hmm. Our definition of pop music today was basically invented by Black people back then. And so when we feel acculturated in American culture, a lot of the culture that we consume are created by Black artists in general. And that's why we kind of consume it. And maybe that's why also, that's like the surface level of why Asian Americans are entering that space too, is because they're just so familiar with it, right? Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting for the next episode because um, it was the beginning. It's set in San Francisco, which is, I mean, San Francisco Asians. They're are, a whole other breed. <laughs> a whole other. I mean, I was just going to say San Francisco Asians are just different from like LA Asians, but more so that like San Francisco Asians are just kind of a little bit more into hip hop and like b-boying <laughs> and that kind of stuff. I think that this should be another thank you to go episode. We, we're, I think we're <laughs> undecided about our next thank you to go episode, but I like this idea of the next episode being about Northern California Asians or Bay Area Asians to um, SoCal Asians. I'm just going <laughs> to link people to the Fung Bros video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Seems accurate from yeah. 2015. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us on this very lengthy conversation about 88 Rising, Asians, Black artists, hip-hop, and racial triangulation, the big word of the day today. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Feel free to email us at thankyouenjoypod at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions, be sure to follow us on Instagram at thankyouenjoypod and follow us on Twitter at tyenjoypod and all those plugins. So thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next week for a Thank You To Go episode. This episode of Thank You Enjoy was produced by Casey Lee, mixed by Ethan Lee, graphic and logo designed by Chris Kim, who you can follow on Instagram at Chuffamation, and music by Ethan Chong, who you can also follow on Instagram at Ampersand Beats. <laughs>